Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your host this week, it's me, Farmers Guardian News Editor Olivia Midgley. And me, Farmers Guardian Editor Ben Briggs. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe to all your favourite podcast platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure that you stay up to date with all the new episodes. On the show this week, and it's the first in a two-part special on Brexit and trade, that clock is ticking down towards the end of the transition period. And while we might not be any closer to a deal with the EU or the US, we look at how the industry is working to prepare itself for the changes that lie ahead. We look at what's needed to help producers capitalise on any new markets and what other countries are seeking from us. To delve into this in detail, Jez Fredenberg has been speaking to the AHDB International Market Development Director, Dr Phil Hadley, about which areas show demand for British produce and why. But first, she spoke to Rich Clothier, Farmer and Managing Director of White Farms in Somerset, about how his family went from making cheddar in the kitchen to selling 15,000 tonnes annually to 163 countries around the world. Rich talks candidly about how he began exporting, the help available to farmers, why it needn't be complicated, and the importance of storytelling to a brand. The Allflex Sense Hub cattle monitoring system helps you maintain a healthier herd and increase the number of calves born. Putting you in control with live heat detection and early health alerts sent direct to your phone 24-7. Simple to set up and operate, SenseHub takes the guesswork out of beef and dairy herd management and saves you time. For further information, visit shop.allflex.co.uk or simply search for SenseHub UK. With the end of the Brexit transition period just over five months away, what the UK negotiates on trade will be critical for UK farmers. But as an EU member or not, work has always been undertaken to open up new export markets, although these could become even more important if the UK and EU fail to reach a favourable trade agreement. So if you're a farmer, how do you go about capitalising on all these export opportunities? Well, an excellent person to talk to about this is Rich Clothier, MD of Wyke Farms. The family has been farming in Somerset for more than 150 years, but things really got going when Rich's grandmother, Ivy, started making cheddar. Fast forward and Wyke Cheddar has become one of the largest family-owned cheesemakers in Britain, selling over 15,000 tonnes annually to over 160 countries. Rich, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Yes, indeed, it has, Jess. Yeah, it's been yeah, it's been quite a journey, and um, and I like to feel that we've got quite a long way to go as well. Still, so we're just scratching the surface in many ways. Wow, that's quite an ambition. <laughs> Is are all those stats still standing then? So, 160 countries, or have you added any more? I think we're currently about 163 or something like that. But I think the target is to try and do, you know, more volume in some of the countries that we're, where we're present and rather than look for necessarily new regions. OK, so which are your, your biggest export markets at the moment and, which, you know, which ones are the ones that are really growing fastest? Well, I guess the, the EU is the biggest market for us um, and then the US would be probably second. 
but there are really exciting opportunities and developments. Parts of Africa, um, obviously, you know, Asia, so, um, you know, China, Japan, you know, uh, South Korea, um, you know, Australia. Um, so, you know, every really, the, the world's really opened up over the last um, 10 years or so. What, I mean, what do you put your success in exports down to rich because i'm i know you've got great cheddar you've you know you guys have won a lot of awards for your cheese it's obviously really good quality i I think there's two things i think one is i think wherever people eat around the world they they want quality british products with provenance um from the areas that they would have been produced hundreds of years ago and they're quite engaged with the stories that British food producers have got to, to tell. And, you know, if the quality backs that up, then, you know, obviously the logistics have to be good and the customer service has to be good. But there's a real interest in British products and, and the provenance of those sort of quality British products in, in all regions around the world, which is really quite exciting for British food producers. And I guess, you know, there must be an enormous amount of to learn when you go into exports for the first time, um, also when you enter a new market. What would you say to farmers listening who might be considering exporting, but really wondering, you know, whether it's for them or not? You know, what are they going to need to succeed? Well, firstly, the first thing I would say is don't be daunted by it, because it is, at the end of the day, you know, we're selling to you know, different people in another region. But essentially, wherever you sell it, it's the same. I guess flexibility is a key because the different languages for different regions, you know, explore the cultures of those regions and see which products they like. But I guess a first a first port of call usually is, you know, if you go, you know, go onto the DIT website, the Department of International Trade, um, you know, look up, um, you know, the Food is Great website, British Food is Great, and um, and have a look at the opportunities. One of the things I've always felt with exports is rather than, you know, competing against each other like we do in the UK, there's very much a sort of collaborative approach. So, um, you know, quite often people are looking for other food producers to work with in regions because... Um, at the end of the day, you know, I might be delivering into products into, you know, one part of Africa and they might want other products as well. And quite often the cheapest route is to collaborate together and make the best of that opportunity. So I guess just not be daunted and get, you know, try and get stuck in. Okay. I mean, that, that's really nice to hear that, actually, because I think a lot of farmers might be feeling daunted by where to start on exports. Um, but so I suppose let's, Rich, let's go right back to the beginning. Um, do you remember being at that stage? Yeah, I can remember when we first... Well, actually, my dad, um, my dad was always really keen to export back, back in the 1980s and he'd been speaking to some American customers and he got some orders placed, but he could never get it out there because at the time there was restrictions and everything else. So we were always keen to do business in other regions. So um, I, I guess what really got us off the ground was attending a, um, 
I think it might have been a, a food trade mission that was organised by the government, food from Britain or something at the time, in Bordeaux, and just tasting cheeses there and meeting some French people who really liked the cheese. And, you know, quite often, the, you know, quite a lot of them said, you know, we really like this vintage cheddar. We didn't know that cheddar could taste like this. So, so that's how it really started, really, just going to... One um, one sort of trade show, and then um, and then we were quite lucky to get some um, some Defra funding at the time for some tastings in France. And um, people can overcomplicate export, but actually, wherever you sell cheese, it's the same. You know, you've got to get it, you've got to get the cheese out, chop it up, get people to try it, and basically, if they like it, they're going to say, "Can I buy some?" So. It's that simple. It's about trying to get out there and go to a trade show and show people what you've got and hope that they'll like it and then working out a way with them about how they can get it. So it it can be that simple. And I know, Rich, you, you kind of said don't overcomplicate it, but, and this is maybe an odd question, but what does exporting actually involve? You know, what are all the, the technical, legal, logistical issues that you have to deal with and that maybe people don't even think about until they start having to do it? The, the, the key thing is to find the customers in the region, identify who you want to sell to, because all the regions are different. So most of the regions require that each batch has to be inspected by the vets. So the vets actually know quite a lot about the legislation that, that is needed for each of the regions because they sign off a lot of the paperwork and and then it's just a case of working out the logistics and and getting it out there but quite often if you can present the products to the people in the region they'll quite often find a help help you to find a route to the to the market so um, that can be a good place to start and what we've tried to do is find some key partners in each region to work with and um, and that certainly helps to make things easier especially when it comes to things like labeling and local sort of customs traditions and all those sorts of things because it much as as a production person I'd like to think that one size fits all when it comes to packaging and labeling that isn't you know obviously isn't the case because different language spoken in different regions and some regions have multiple languages so um there is a need to be a bit flexible but um ultimately if you take a long-term view on export it's i personally believe it's the way forward for the uk food industry because currently world population is seven billion it's growing to nine billion and um and wealth is shifting into different regions and as british food producers we need to be in those regions and dealing with those people that have got the money to pay the premiums for our products absolutely and i mean of course White has a brilliant story behind it. Like like I said earlier, it started with your your grandmother Ivy. I know you guys are, are you you're net zero and carbon now as well. Well, we produce all of our own energy, all of our own gas and electricity from um, from our anaerobic digester and um, um, from way from waste. We've also got solar panels and um, and when, then we do all the 
um, good manufacturing practice things um, such as soft start motors and inverters and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, we're, we're heavily focused on minimising the environmental impact of what we do. And that does, and that, do, that is quite attractive to um, people in different regions around the world. Well, I guess the Asian countries are very tuned in to climate change and, um, and, and actually um, the US market is as well because there's a tendency to think that, you know, Americans might be sort of, you know, gas guzzlers and, but actually there's a really strong environmental lobby in the US that, that are looking for products that are produced in a way that does, you know, have a positive impact, a net positive impact on the environment. I think it's something that the UK can probably do really well because um, UK farmers, you know, in, in our, and certainly in the dairy sector, you know, we produce loads of grass. We don't have to fight necessarily to produce against the elements to produce milk. You know, we've we've got a, we've got a great story to tell. The UK dairy industry's got a fantastic story to tell people all across the world. So, um, so and I find they're really receptive to that. So that's something to be hugely optimistic about. Do you find that your that, that story then? Um, you know, is that really important when you're selling abroad? It's really, really important because we take, in the UK, we take food safety and standards for granted. And, you know, and, and, and my team and, you know, and farmers that I meet everywhere, they always complain about, you know, audits and all the red tape and all that other stuff. But actually, um, that's what gives people the reassurance around the world to buy British food because they know that in Britain we do things properly. So I always say to people that, you know, instead of being unhappy when the farm assurance person turns up on the farm, you know, shake their hand and pat them on the back because they're probably one of one of our best salespeople when it comes to dealing in Asia, China and places like that where the food safety standards can't be taken for granted. Is, is there anything you wish that you had known at the beginning of your uh, export journey, as it were, Rich? It's a, that's a tough one, Jess. That is a, that is a tough one because I think every day, every day is a different day. I think that... Um, you never know you, you never know really what's going to work and that's the uh, that's that's one of the things that i've learned you know you do, you there's no, you can you can do the best studies in the world on different regions and say what's going to work where and you never know until you get there and you you know you sort of try it i mean we one of the things that we one of the We've got this index that we call the Shabley Index because we we say that anywhere in the world that you can sell f nice French wine, we should be able to sell cheddar. And sometimes that can work really, really well, and other times. So there are there are all sorts of metrics that we've tried to develop to predict. But really, export is unpredictable and um, and and really dynamic as well because. As I said, world populations are growing. Wealth is shifting between the regions. I mean, if you take India, for example, um, over the next 10 years, there's about 300 million people joining the middle classes and they're going to be looking to eat more dairy products and more meat products. There's pockets of affluence growing all around the world and um, 
and there's opportunities everywhere and I guess having lots of energy and and being open-minded is a really key they're really key qualities to try and um, take advantage of those those things you're still plowing on and so are we Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com forward slash subscriptions today. That was Rich Clothier, MD of Family Farming Business and Cheddar Makers, Wyke Farms in Somerset. And we'll be hearing more from Rich next week in a part two about exports, including what the UK can learn from the Irish, which country he wishes we had a trade deal with, and his top three tips for export success. So to delve a little further into export opportunities, including for beef, lamb and pig meat, I also caught up with Dr. Phil Hadley, AHDB's International Market Development Director. Phil, which areas of the world or which countries are the current hotspots for opportunities in terms of UK, uh, UK agricultural products right now? We're looking at the emerging economies, really, the countries that have got a changing demographic in terms of increasing wealth, changing diets, countries that are travelling and experiencing different cultures and trying different foods and so on. Um, China, for example, has been incredibly uh, successful for our pork sector in the last 10 years since gaining access and is a key outlet for, for our products. Uh, but also other markets that where we've had where we identified some years ago the opportunity to sell products there and we've been part of a long-term market access dialogue which is now turning into commercial trade so we've had recent successes with gaining access uh, for red meat in japan uh, middle east also is uh, is a growing sheep meat or will be a growing market of importance for the sheep meat sector and then US, uh, we're on the sort of latter stages of market access. I think from the dairy sector, those markets are around changing dietary habits and increasing uh, consumption of dairy products from a relatively low base. And that would include the Asian region markets and, and China again. But the Middle East uh, is also an emerging opportunity for the dairy sector. And then the US and the EU that obviously big dairy consumers anyway the opportunity to sell our differentiated products there is uh, is an exciting one what are the opportunities for say like the beef sector you know which countries are you really looking at there and and again what are the consumers wanting and what is it about our beef that might help fill that gap that um, that demand yeah well we've we've done some consumer research looking at attitudes to our products and um, what are the messages we might convey in those markets that um, resonate with the consumers there so for example in the um, high value Japanese market it's very much about safety and quality uh, in uh, China it's around food safety and freshness uh, of products whereas in the in the US it's things like um, high welfare so each market has its particular nuances that you can you can promote the attributes that our products have would lamb be would lamb be the same lamb uh, the markets are around uh, outside of europe they're around the middle east and we're targeting also taiwan 
uh, as an opportunity. And then on the port side, for example, we're, we've recently hosted an inward inspection visit with UK government of Mexican inspectors um, to uh, seek access to that marketplace. And what about dairy then? Because obviously, I think you said that the Middle East is a growing market for dairy and it's something that is is very new in those countries isn't it it's not necessarily something that people aren't used to eating cheddar or stilton or anything so how do you kind of approach those markets that are are very um new to things like cheese particularly stronger cheeses well that's a really good point in terms of the strengths of cheese so if we if we take the middle east and the asian region and, and china for example they're they're not historically huge consumers of uh, of dairy products middle east has in certain areas an expat type community so they are familiar and you do see those products there and so we've we've used some intelligence and we've looked at the markets and consumer attitudes and so on and what we've uh, what we've learned and gathered and, and indeed companies are doing this very successfully is that you know, smaller pack sizes because they don't consume it at the rate that we may consume a, a block of cheese, for example, and more prone towards the milder flavours, as you point out there, less less familiar and therefore reluctant to go for the really strong type cheeses at this point in time, but their dietary habits are changing. Uh, and in those markets, there's also uh, the linked opportunity, you know, beyond just simply cheese for uh, yogurts and and other um, other dairy related products as their dietary habits are changing so that I think there's great growth potential uh, in in some of these markets that we're only really just um, tapping into does our USP as a country change depending on the market you know because I'm thinking that we hear a lot in in the farming uh, community and press about how you know GB agriculture is seen as you know high quality it has a lot of heritage it has sustainability aspects to it um, all these things does that USB kind of carry weight wherever you are or does it depend on the market it, it does depend on the market, and and again, that's part of our intelligence gathering exercise to work out what are the key key messages in each uh, each given market. So, for example, consumers in China are very um, very aware of food safety concerns, so they prioritise food safety, and they see the UK as a producer of safe and wholesome food. So that's a positive message that we can convey in that Chinese marketplace. But when we look at um, the US, for example, they're perhaps a bit more tiered towards the wholesomeness of the product, the story of the product. So you might, in that market, dial up the extensive production or the natural uh, characteristics of production um, to convey a slightly different message. So part of that or the key part of that work is really understanding what are the what are the key things that consumers in a given country are interested in and what's fairly clear is that it's not uniformly the same across the world so when we understand that we can make sure that we're making the right messages in those marketplaces to um you know pique the consumer's interest and and get them to buy the product and what can what can farmers do to make the most of export opportunities Phil because obviously for I think for a lot of people listening this sounds very sort of um 
abstract, you know, and far from the farm gate. What can a farmer actually do to sort of work towards um, making the most of export opportunities? Well, of course, in the red meat sector and indeed the dairy sector, the product will go won't go directly from the farm. It will go through a processor, and then it will be uh, will be sold on to international markets. So, farmers might think they're detached from the international marketplace, but there's a very good chance that their products or some of their their animals or, or uh, products are ending up on that uh, international marketplace. So, whilst whilst it might appear to be a little abstract. There's a strong uh, likelihood that their products are being traded internationally. I think if they work with their processor or the buyer of their their stock or, or, or milk, for example, they can understand what what they need to do to make sure that their um, products meet all those specifications and be pretty clear, really, that the value that that international market add does drive the price and does have an impact on the ex-farm gate price. So having access to international markets and having exporters that are in that um, arena is driving a value up and down the supply chain. And last one, Phil, which country or region do you think is a kind of hot one to watch in the longer term future in terms of export opportunities? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the ones I've, I've mentioned, uh, China, Taiwan, Mexico, South Korea, etc., they're all markets that we're seeking access to or are gaining access. And once you have access, then the trade has every potential to increase. I think India's probably one that at the moment is... Uh, we're not doing huge amounts from the livestock side of products to India, but has potential for the future, if we look forward 10 years, for example as their individual wealth increases and the infrastructure increases, um, tourism increases, high-end Western hotels, etc., I think India's probably one for the, for the sort of medium and longer-term horizon that, that will present growing opportunities um, for our products. And uh, so I, I guess from a one-to-watch, from a long-term perspective, I'd probably back, the, uh, back India. CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this Covid crisis the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more go to www.cla.org.uk Thanks for that, Jez, and to Phil and Rich for their insight. More from Rich next week. Now, Merseyside arable farmer Ollie Harrison had a blooming good idea when he decided to pay tribute to healthcare workers, and in particular, his sister, who works as a theatre nurse at Ormskirk Hospital. Ollie and his team, who regularly host a 16-acre sunflower maze on farm for visitors, planted an acre and a half of sunflowers back in April, spelling out NHS, and now they're in flower, they look absolutely superb. Our reporter Molly Leach spoke to Ollie to find out how it's gone down with the public. What was the motivation behind the Say It With Sunflowers idea? And can you tell us a bit more about the construction of the NHS sign and the sunflower maze? 
Yeah, I mean, to be fair, at the time we were sowing sunflowers. I always grow sunflowers and do some sort of charity thing with them because I, I kind of like growing them. Um, but at the time, everyone was doing this clap for curers and different things. Well, if a farmer goes outside and claps in his doorstep, no one can hear him. So we were like, well, let's do something that's a big impact. So we um, we decided if we if we did letters in the field, they'd be able to be seen from, from aeroplanes and all sorts. We tried to pick a field with a bit of a slope on, but you can't actually see it from the road the way it's worked because the, the hedges have all greened up. But the, um, it was a bit tricky to do, to be honest, because it was so dry, the weather. We couldn't see where we'd driven with the tractors when we were when we were marking it out. We tried to sort of like cultivate the ground in the right shape, mm. and um, then we got a drone up to see what it looked like. But it was drying so fast that we actually ended up having to use the GPS screens totally to to get it looking right. And it actually went dark at the first attempt, so we gave up and re- regrouped the next morning and tried again. The letters are around 200 foot, so I was saying they were 200 foot high, but obviously the sunflowers don't grow 200 foot high. But the 200 foot sort of deep by about 700 foot. So it's a, I think it's about an acre and a half. I think it probably takes up the actual NHS bit with the uh, with the grass we've sown around the edge as well. And um, 50% of all the profits will be donated to the NHS and um, its partnering charities. Was that a really important motivation behind the, the hashtag say it with sunflowers idea? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it, you know, it, it's nice to be able to give something back. And, you know, and, uh, who knows, if I, if I end up with COVID-19 and needed, needed a... <laughs> I might get looked after a bit better if I've been good to it. <laughs> As part of the maze um, that you've constructed, you and your team have constructed, I understand that basically visitors are quizzed on their sort of knowledge of bees and pollinators, and with every correct answer, it kind of keeps them on the right path. Um, That's right, yeah. Yeah. Do you think, as well as raising money for the NHS, it's been a good way of educating people about farming and, and the environment that, you know, and the environment around them? Oh yeah, definitely, and um, they they don't know it yet, but everyone's now follows in the social media accounts for the sunflower maze, and for the next uh, forever and a day, they're now going to be drip fed information about farming, whether they like it or not. So uh, next year we'll do a different theme around the quiz, maybe maybe about wheat or something like that, or 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 different sort of pollinator crops. And I've even thought that if we do it again, maybe I could in the middle where we've got sort of gaps where people have you know, could take a rest and put some benches and things. I might put some, you know, wheat crop, a barley crop, an oat crop. So as they go around the maze, they, they come across these other crops and it tells you what, what they do about it and, and build on it a bit more that way as well. Yeah. And it looks like it's had a brilliant response, as we've seen across social media. But just from your experience, what has the response been like from the public to the Say It With Sunflowers venture that you started? Oh, everyone's made up. I mean, I, obviously, it's been quite wet this last week for harvesting, so I, I've actually been helping running it and asking for feedback when people people have been visiting. Whether if we did it again, would they would they come again, and and, and what they thought of it? And, and they're all they're all made up. And I did think that oh, once they visited a sunflower field once, that's it. They won't do it again. But there's, there's people actually saying, oh, I'm coming back again next week. So they they, they love it. So it's. Uh, just seems to have hit on something that people like at the moment and it's obviously with all what's going on in the world at the moment walking around the field without anyone else around you is a good thing to do because we've, we've timed the visits as well you see so so you kind of you're not in there on your own but it's so big that you can walk around and not bump into anyone else thanks to molly and well done to ollie a man never to miss a trick the maze is sure to brighten up a lot of people's days while also playing an important educational role for children especially around pollinators and of course, raising vital funds for NHS charities. You can see the full story and the fantastic aerial shots of the sunflowers 
at fginsight.com. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks as ever for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of all the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back next Tuesday, but from us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.